1: If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how.
0: I'm really excited about this week's episode. Uh, I'd like to do more episodes kind of in this vein in the future, and I plan on it, uh, really where academic research meets my own interests in Christian faith, other faith, psychology, etc. This is one of the first interviews for this show that I've done um, specifically about a paper and a a psychological um, construct that is measurable that these two gentlemen have put together. I'm talking about my guests today, Stephen Cranny and Joseph Lehman, and they are sociologists of religion basically. And they, uh, well, you'll hear them talk about the paper that they did, but it, they developed something called the hell anxiety scale. And uh, this is just my wheelhouse guys, as you can probably know, if you have listened long enough, Um, you know, I'm studying to be a psychologist myself I plan to do at least some research, although I also uh, I want to be a clinician and have clients, but I do want to do some research. And this is the kind of research that gets me just so jazzed and so pumped up. So I wanted to talk with them about their paper, but also there's all kinds of really interesting issues around their research. Other stuff that people have figured out what's going on with measuring fear of hell. What do we even what do people mean by hell? What do they mean by heaven? Uh, Are there kind of limits Can you think that there is a hell and that you're going there? Does anybody really think that? Or is there kind of a blockage? Stuff like that is is what we get into in this conversation. Anyway, as you can imagine, I had a field day talking to these guys. I got to ask all kinds of questions that I'm interested in that most people are not in a position to answer. So uh, I really enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. Let's dive in. Joseph and Stephen, thank you guys so much for joining me, and thank you for being the maiden voyage of a a three-way audio recording. This is my first one. We're crossing our fingers, but I think it's going to work fine. I love this article that you guys published, and and we're going to get into that in a minute, but I, I think that people don't often quite understand sort of what's going on with scholarly study of religious people and their psychology. I think there can be a sense in which... Hey, you're, these are outsiders coming in and like messing with us or observing us like monkeys in a cage, something like that. Uh, but you are both people of faith. I see a crucifix. Joseph, in the background of your uh, camera here, you're recording in your home. Can you guys each just say a little bit about your own personal Christian faith and how you got into this uh, this line of work of, of academically studying on the ground people's faith and and their psychology and how those relate. Maybe we'll start with you, Joseph.
2: Sure. Well, I grew up in a really hardcore fundamentalist community in the Midwest where um, women wore head coverings, skirts. Uh, We didn't participate in sports, things like that. And that was actually a, a nice community to grow up in as far as being sheltered goes. But then I got to college and took some philosophy courses and my mind was classically blown, if you will. I eventually settled on studying psychology and was just curious as to how people believe the things they do. Like, why why is it that some people believe some things really passionately and some people believe other things really passionately? I was fortunate enough to work with Dr. Wade Rowett at Baylor, who studies psychology of religion. And that is sort of like, it's sort of like partially me-search, if you will, you know, um, like research about why I am the way that I am. But it's also just, I think, the scientific community as well. Uh, served by looking at the whole of human experience rather than just little parts of it that we cut up and um, examine under a microscope.
0: I very much relate to the me search thing. I I mean, I'm sure it's going to come up at some point here that I'm in the very beginning stages of working on some research around eschatology and, and specifically like left behind style end times stuff and mental health. And that is very much my own story, especially many years ago. And it's almost like a trope, right? With younger researchers, you start with me search to understand yourself and then you go from there.
2: That's right. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Uh, Steven, let's hear from you.
3: Yeah, that was actually fun, Joseph. I, I hadn't heard your, your whole story before. So, uh, yeah, so Joseph was is the only co-author I've had that grew up in a more conservative setting than I did. Um, <laughs> <laughs> So pretty traditional, uh, Latter-day Saint, uh, Mormon background. My dad works at Brigham Young University in Provo. I distinctly remember the first time I met a non-Mormon. So I, I, I grew up in what sociologists call the sacred canopy, right? The entire Ooh. community. Yes.
0: <laughs> nice term drop Bring there. in the, that's the, good. The,
3: the terminology here. I, I never had a, a rebellious stage, really. I just kind of kept with it, and, and that's what I am now. As far as my motivation, yeah, there is a little bit of that me search in, in in that too. That's the first time I've heard of that term, but that's very apropos. A little bit of that, and also I think when you're when you're in an environment where religion is just so important, then it's obviously a very salient thing. And then you get out there, you realize that. that there's not as much research as you might think given how relevant it is and so i think i mean it's it's a it's it's a similar phenomenon that you see when you know a lot of minorities in sociology study minority issues right i mean it's it's something that's affected your life i mean from a maybe a more objective perspective i think religion is one of the most powerful drivers of uh, so so i'm a religion specialist and actually sexuality specialist and so I always say, you know, religion is one of the most powerful drivers of human behavior and so sexuality. So the the intersection between those two, I didn't, I didn't intersect them for this paper. But just objectively speaking, they're very powerful forces that aren't getting as much research attention, given how important they are.
0: Yeah, and I think just anecdotally on this show, we've done two episodes on purity culture and sort of the mm-hmm. aftermath of that massive movement, uh, which affected just millions and millions of Christians roughly our age. And I think that the effects are very poorly understood at this point, but there are like some through lines we can draw and those episodes get a lot of downloads. Uh, Mm. People mention them to me a lot anecdotally in person, you know, if we're talking about the show and uh, I have myself just have tons of what I think are quite interesting questions about all of that. So I'm, I'm on board. Well, it's no surprise that I loved your paper and that I'm agreeing or resonating with what you guys are both saying. That makes sense.
2: But are just glad somebody wrote, uh, read it. So, <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I was I I used the like these various uh, you know scholarly article search things to to look this up as sort of early research for um, for my own work. Increasingly, I am coming to believe that a fear of hell, of going to hell, is at the bottom of just a massive percentage of various behaviors or especially, I would say, gatekeeping in religious communities, sort of like this information is okay, This information is suspect. These people are okay, These people are suspect. If you drill down, if you drill down below what's going on there, I think so often it's, well, hell. I mean, that's that's sort of the ultimate trump card of like, don't do this because hell. Uh, And then, of course, the anxiety about hell is just the phenomenological, the, the experiential version of that right a person being anxious about the possibility of hell what i want to know here first is we could talk about anxiety about hell uh, but but the ideas of hell are not you know homogenous right people have different understandings of hell are we talking about sort of one particular understanding of hell over another or is that just an area where more work would need to be done to sort of separate out the effects of this anxiety given views of hell
3: so that's one thing that it is hard to know because there are so many different ideas. When you say the word hell, what does that mean exactly? Is that red-hot pinchers applied to your sensitive areas? Is it an eternity without God? It varies so much across different religious disciplines. So yeah, this hell research is... is it's difficult to know how to interpret it because it's like, what are they talking about exactly? And we tried to dig into that a little bit in this paper to try to differentiate. We did a little some qualitative interviews where we just kind of interviewed people about, you know, what do you think about hell? What does it entail? I mean, just personally, from my background, the Latter-day Saint conception is very different from the traditional Christian conception. So, I didn't, so again, this is a perfect example of like, when you say hell to a Latter-day Saint, it's very different from when you say hell to a Protestant and to the Protestant, it's very different to a Catholic. It's very different to a Muslim. And so it was just, so I was acutely aware of this gap but it's hard to know how to resolve that because it's hard to it's hard to measure theological constructs because they're so complicated and it's yeah. it's you're trying to, to to put a graduate level theology course into you know a one-line question that according to the canons of survey design should be understood by an eighth grader right and so it's, it's a very right. difficult thing to measure so yeah that is yeah so that's that's totally an issue
0: Will you say a little bit more before we move on? Uh, This is interesting to me. What is the LDS conception of hell as opposed to the standard Mm -hmm. Protestant view?
3: So, uh, well, again, it varies a lot actually from from Mormon to Mormon because there's there's, uh, no kind of Mormon catechism really. Mormon theology is defined by kind of this Talmudic body of – quotations from the church leadership, in addition to a few uh, canonized texts, there is a traditional hell where, where, you know, you're cast down with Satan forever. But according to kind of this Talmudic body of different citations, you know, the, the number of people who will end up there can be counted on one hand. So it's basically, it's almost almost universal salvation. Now within heaven, there's different gradations. And sometimes they refer to the lowest gradation in heaven as hell. So that complicates things, and so so even the LDS hell is kind of complicated. Right. And so that yeah. that primed you know primed me for for saying when we when we we're trying to address this academically, like okay, what exactly are we talking about with hell? Because even within
2: traditions, it varies a lot. So you guys manage to be a bunch of really nice uh, people that are like hardcore with your faith and belief, and you don't have this big stick of burning in hell. I think that's fantastic. Well, well,
3: that well that's the other thing I wonder is is. Yes, hell is a motivator, but you can definitely still have, I mean, I mean I'm, I'm sure I, we both have guilt trip stories from our religious upbringing, you know, but I think in a way it's actually a demonstration that you can still have very strong religious guilt without the hellfire.
0: Yeah, that's really good. That's maybe a, a challenge to my intuition that fear of hell is at the bottom of so much of it, and per- perhaps it's at, l- at the bottom of less than I think. I mean, it's um, at the bottom of a lot, but yes. yeah. So what we do know, even if we don't know what kind of hell people believe in, we do know that most Americans believe in hell. How do we know that?
3: I mean, there, there are multiple surveys. I think the general social survey asked, but yeah, there's a lot of these omnibus surveys where they just ask, do you believe in hell? It's like what, 78% or something like that. Yeah. yeah I don't remember the exact number.
0: It seems to me like one way we might talk about the effect of the motivator of, of hell is that there's a short term benefit. Basically, if you have people do a test and they might cheat, you don't give you don't tell them anything, they'll cheat X amount. If you say this building has been known to be haunted, they'll cheat a little bit less. And if you say this building has been known to be haunted and just a, a minute ago one of our researchers is pretty sure they saw a ghost in the hallway, they'll cheat even less. So in the short term, there's there's probably some kind of effect of like the supernatural sort of modulating our ethical choices. But then in the long term, I think it can be argued that one of the reasons that young people are leaving the church is that they find some of these beliefs so abhorrent and maybe even silly that they just in the long run, they'll end up just taking off because you, you can only get short term gains so often before people sort of understand the con and they they opt out entirely. So this is one way we might think about sort of the effectiveness of the belief Maybe short-term, if someone's sitting in the pews, it motivates them. But long-term, it might motivate them to leave altogether or find a new understanding of faith. What do you guys think about that kind of basic way of thinking about it?
2: I certainly know that uh, an acute fear of hell played a huge role in my conversion experience when I was very young. But I think like a lot of people in today's sort of dealing with faith, the traditional conception of hell does seem problematic. And it's not that it's not a motivator. It's that it doesn't seem to be accurately fit together with the kind of God and metaphysical reality that we think is coherent or morally praiseworthy. It's just so overwhelming to think about being tortured forever or being burned forever that I think the mind cuts out at a certain point and just sort of blanks. It just sort of says, um, like you reach whatever the maximum potential for motivating yourself is. And then your mind cuts out and says, okay, I yeah. can't, I can't process this anymore. I'm already motivated as I can be. hundred um,
0: percent. That's that, that resonates a lot with me that, yeah. I mean, someone can imagine, Oh, I'll be punished. Like we have a sense of, yeah, I don't want to be punished. And we might imagine like, Oh, a hundred straight years of punishment. And like, we can't really go beyond that. And we can't really even imagine sort of, constant fire and boils on the skin unless we have the small percentage of us who have been sort of burned really badly or tortured or something like that in a war setting. I mean, most people don't even really have a concept for that stuff. So there there does probably seem to be some sort of psychic limit to to like being able to conceive of the awfulness of hell.
2: And I think theologically, or at least um, as far as everyday people's psychological um, uh, reality and practice of religion goes, that's fine as far as it's meant to be the sort of like ultimate bad thing that you want to avoid, and it's sufficient for that purpose. But I think as modern conceptions of faith take a look back at it, it just doesn't seem quite as sophisticated or as realistic as it could be uh, in the sense of, well, how, how is that going to work metaphysically? How is, a, how is something going to burn forever without being used up? I think it also hints at some kind of punitive version of God that most people aren't really drawn into in the way that they want to be drawn into. But that's just sort of anecdotal.
3: Well, and, and part of this study kind of stemmed from my curiosity about whether the Overton window of, so like the the, the intervals for like acceptable beliefs or whatever on uh, vis-a-vis hell have shifted in regards to on, on the religious spectrum from kind of liberal Christians to conservative Christians. And, you know, so so when we talk about, well, people leave the church because of the, these you know intense versions of hell. I mean, well, there are, there are churches that don't have such versions of hell. Right. And we can, and so all things being equal, if that was to be a big driver of people away from, these churches we would expect them to be shrinking faster or growing slower as the case may be than the ones that do have a a a nicer version of of the afterlife um and that's actually not really what we see so i i so i mean i'm sure it does happen in in individual cases joseph you you spoke about you and i don't mean to dismiss those those personal experiences um but yeah on a a sociological level it is interesting to me how and and like i said i i was kind of wondering as somebody who's frankly, kind of from the outside looking in on how hell interplays with kind of traditional Christian practice and belief was, okay, has the window shifted so that even kind of conservatives, you know, Christians who consider themselves more orthodox, you know, evangelicals, do they still believe in eternal torture? You know, again, the red, the the, the most unimaginable pain multiplied by eternity, is that still part of their worldview? So there was a little, I was very curious about that. And again, but there's no real evidence on that because people just say hell and then they they put that in their surveys and we don't know what that means when they answer that. So part of me was and and I and I got a little tasted we didn't we didn't quite answer the the question because we didn't fill the huge general social survey on this. But that that was part of the motivating factor.
0: That is really interesting. I like what you're saying about if it was just a gruesome vision of hell that was motivating people out of the church, then you'd think that we would see them joining churches that have a different version of hell, because if that was the only thing and they wanted everything else to be the same, then they would, they would go over here. It's, it's pretty clearly not that simple. Um, Mm -hmm. The, the big movement right now is, is from people out of the church completely to, but, but not necessarily to atheism more Mm -hmm. to spiritual, but not religious, right? That's the biggest fastest growing group. I'm just kind of spitballing here. These are the kind of conversations I get to have when I go to like the AAR conference and stuff and over beers with friends. It might be that the hell stuff is baked in with perceived homophobia. It's baked in with like politics and religion being married in a way that seems kind of gross to a lot of younger people. And so they just go, well, I'm, I guess I'm out, but I still believe in God. So going to like a Methodist church, or something would solve those but they're sort of not aware of that and and they're just maybe having like a this is like a this is gross kind of a thing and they don't want to be in a church building for a while you know i don't know that's interesting and then also anecdotally no, a number of friends have tried to go to liberal mainline churches and just found the actual atmosphere of like everybody is old and the hymns <laughs> really suck to to be hard and so they, huh. there's sort of a cultural limitation that it isn't – it's not a straight, well, we'll just transfer our membership to this congregation because yeah. there are sort of other impediments in the way. I don't know. That's the, that's just all really interesting to me.
3: Well, and I think it raises the question of how salient is hell. I was talking to Melton who's the top scholar of new religious movements in the world. And one of the great things of being at Baylor is his office was right up from my office. And and I mentioned this to him and I think he's a, he's an ordained minister of some sort. He's like, I don't think I've heard a sermon about hell in years. And he's not well, even a particularly liberal Christian, you know? So I do wonder when we talk about, well, if they would move to go to a kind of a less hell one where hell has a different concept. It's like, I think I, I get. I, I don't get the sense. Again, I'm from the outside looking in here. That within traditional Christian discourse, even in more conservative Christian denominations, that hell is that salient right now. Um, I might be wrong. On
0: I this. think it's regional, though. I mean, I okay. think if you grow up in the South, for instance, like sort of a lot of the lower church Protestant communities are real big on hell still. And oh, okay, you know. And so and then also, I'm you know mostly talking to people sort of my age, late 20s. I don't know what it's like for a nine-year-old right now in some of those denominations. And and you might be right that the window has shifted on what's acceptable and perhaps perhaps there are basically like no megachurches anymore doing straight up fire and brimstone and only smaller congregations. I don't know. Joseph, do you have thoughts on that? Because you, you did sort of grow up with more of that kind of spirit.
2: Yeah, um, I think Stephen's intuition is right for the most part. There wasn't a lot of this like – you know, Jonathan Edwards, Puritan, sinners in the hands of an angry God type of thing. I just get this sense that there's this really big intuition that hell is the bad response, the the one that, that you want to avoid. And so as a consequence, it just needs to be referenced very obliquely or slightly in order to get the point home. I mean, it doesn't take a lot of thinking or effort or reasoning or persuasion to get someone to realize, oh, yeah, that's, that sounds terrible. Um, I do have another sense, though, in that even in conservative circles – the more sort of theologically sophisticated you become, the less attached you are to this sort of raw, painful imagery of hell. And the more you shift into a kind of not symbolic, because I think that they would all believe that hell is a real thing, but that it's not necessarily about uh, the lake of fire so much as it's about like a separation from God and, you know, still a painful one. But the people that I know that are like still reading theological texts and are conservative, I don't think they spend a lot of time on the actual uh, reality of hell, per se, or at least the reality of hell that we kind of expose younger, less sophisticated Christians to in their conversion experience, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. So one thing that I I thought was really interesting in your guys' paper, you say that oftentimes fear of hell or belief in hell can be treated by academics like it's pathological, as in like it's a mental health disorder type of a thing. You're overly fixated on Something sort of like having depression or having panic attacks or whatever. And you guys said it might not be like that. It might just be like a rational response to theological premises that are presented to you as true your whole life depending on where you're raised. And so if those things are true – I mean in one sense it's a a shock that we don't have far more people outside of stadiums with signs and and bullhorns because they are technically right – to do that given, you know, I mean, there's some questions about what's effective communication style and what's not, but in terms of the motivations, like those people are doing the letter of the law and the rest of us who are simply attending the baseball game are neglecting the eternal souls of everybody around us. Right.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. And Gillette. He makes that point a lot, actually, where he says he's not offended when people try to proselytize his tomb. Right. Because he says, if you assume those premises, how much would you have to hate me to not try to, to not try to get me to go to hell, right? You know, for example, somebody might be depressed and their life might be objectively horrible, right? And so, their depression is a very rational response to the fact that they just have an objectively bad situation that they're in. You know, so how, do you treat that as a pathology? And so, like I said, that, that's part of a broader question that that the mental health uh, professionals are trying to address. But yeah, I mean, I mean, and 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 like I said, some of this is stolen from this discourse that you get in the like in the, the New Atheist and other people. I think I say Richard Dawkins in the paper where he talks about yeah. his own his early sort of fear of hell that he had and how and this is super controversial when he said it. I mean it's his experiences It's his right to say it, but when he actually said he was also sexually abused when he said that his exposure to hell was more psychologically damaging to him than his sexual abuse was so so i saw a lot of this informal discourse you know sam harris is big on this right so if you believe that you will go to hell the people blowing up buildings to keep other people from going to hell are acting in a very rational manner from a utilitarian perspective so i was like okay well let's take this logic and run with it and see
2: how people incorporate this, this logic. Yeah. And then from a psychology of religion perspective, there's always a question of which mental health variables are associated with which particular religious points of view, right? Like the more religious you are, the more fundamentalist you are, you know, the more, the more of a social dominance orientation you have, how are these things correlated with each other? And so that was another question we wanted to address. Like, uh, for instance, there's a form of uh, religiosity, that interacts with obsessive compulsive disorder called scrupulosity. That's really interesting. And it's the sense that, you know, unless you observe certain religious practices in a certain way, you may be at risk of damnation, or you may be at risk of losing God's blessing in your life. And so it's a it was a question of, you know, on the one hand, like we've been talking about, is it a really rational response to a really um, simple philosophical premises, or is it something that we've taken and we've kind of twisted in our approach to our day-to-day religious behavior?
0: Yeah, scrupulosity, let's put a pin in that because that's going to come back in in terms of your findings. I do want to say it is, it's is—it's rational, but it's bounded rationality, right? Because sure. you also mentioned that just like almost every other aspect of our rational selves, we have these various cognitive biases. And one of the ones that's important here is that people heavily discount future consequences of their actions. So it might be true that – or it seems to be true that on the one hand, it's rational to act in a certain way if you think that hell may await you in the future. On the other hand, we're pretty bad about forecasting the future. We're bad at saving. You know, we're bad at delaying gratification that might be double or triple if we just wait a little longer. So how does that play in here?
3: Well, that, that's a huge, I mean, that, that was one of the main takeaways of the paper, right? was that the people basically don't act rationally in response to a belief in hell, right? Because from a utilitarian framework, if you believe in an eternity of physical torture, and then everybody who has that belief should be as religious as possible. They should all be dedicating, you know, they should all be monks, dedicate going full throttle, dedicating everything, right? And that's obviously not the behavioral pattern that we see. And so, so yeah, based, based on the results here, we basically found that, you know, if you, if you believe in hell, then you heavily discount the possibility that you're going there. We actually had a hard time finding people who thought that they were going to hell and then also had a very harsh vision of hell. Um, There are people like that, like I said, anecdotally, but that's, it seemed like you kind of either had one or the other because another psychological bias a lot of people have is they don't, it's it's difficult for them to hold multiple beliefs that cause this kind of emotional distress. And so they'll kind of, Decrease one or the other, so that that's sort of the pattern that we
2: saw. Yeah, cognitive dissonance just won't let you be in that position of I believe in hell and I believe I'm going to hell. So therefore, you either flip those really quickly. You either say, Well, I no longer believe in hell, or I believe in hell, but I also believe that I've taken steps to rectify that and I'm and I'm saved.
3: Yeah, or 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 a very vicious version of hell again. The, yeah. there, there's that so, distinction, Yeah.
0: So that's interesting. So it's is there a way in which the people who are very heavily religious, the monks and the nuns and UN, the, I mean, monks of all religious traditions, the sort of the true believers, is it that they are capable of more cognitive dissonance? Is it that is, you know what I'm saying? Like do they lack a module that sort of moderates that in their own mind?
3: Wow. That's a good question. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, Thank you. <laughs> well, no, I'm just I'm trying to research <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to figure out how we would even study that. I guess we could just get a bunch of like high performers and right. or something. But um,
3: I mean, I, I guess I'm still thinking in terms of my own situation. Um, zealotry does not require hell, right? So right. you do wonder what the motivators. You, again, you have the carrots and the sticks, right? And so I think a lot of zealotry that comes from that's very internally motivated does come from a natural. I, I think there there are some people who are naturally more religious. Religiously scrupulous. There are some people that that naturally are more drawn towards what religion is selling in terms of you know having this very structured framework that, that tells you what's right and wrong and what you should do or not. So, so I think that may happen. I do think that for a lot of the very the, the monks, the highly in, intensely religious people, that is a good question. And I do, but I, I, I think that for a lot of them, it might not be that much about hell at all. It's it's yeah, you know, these other motivators.
0: Well, certainly the. The various monks and nuns that I've read over the years, most of them in the Christian tradition but not entirely, uh, they they very much do not appear to be motivated by a fear of hell. But uh, the reason that I look up to so many of those thinkers and writers is because they really seem to be motivated by the beautiful parts of the tradition and not the sort of darker, scary parts. Well and
3: I think it's worth noting and we mentioned this in the paper uh, Augustine when he originally was coming out with a lot of the uh concepts of hell that later became mainstream into into Christianity he had a lot of pushbacks from you know a lot of people think that this very uh physical sense of hell is just is, is was the traditional version of hell for, forever but August, a lot of these concepts come from that era and so a lot of the early church fathers actually had more sophisticated nuanced takes on hell that most people realize yeah. so when we talk about these spiritually great men uh, you know a lot of them uh, are very devout men you know a lot, a lot of them also have very sophisticated nuanced takes on hell as well
0: um, We're gonna take a little break and when we come back we're gonna actually talk about the hell anxiety scale that you guys developed <music> this week, the most recent exclusive episode for patrons only was with Myron Penner, the philosopher from British Columbia who was on the recent uh, coronavirus and the problem of evil episode. And something came up during that episode called skeptical theism. We talked about it for just a few minutes, but it was I was really intrigued by it and wanted to pursue it further. So I did a whole conversation with Myron about skeptical theism. Uh The one sentence definition of it is uh, basically it's a view that says, Whatever God's reasons are for morally allowing suffering, we, might, we should expect that our cognitive machinery is not capable of discerning those reasons. So it is one of the answers from a Christian perspective or a theistic perspective uh, to the problem of evil. It's something that I was, I was curious about. I'm, I find myself quite open to it after having this long conversation with him. Super interesting. It's a little bit on the headier side. Uh, Compared to most episodes, but you don't have to have a degree in philosophy or anything to listen to it. Um, I think we did a pretty good job of keeping the language regular, um, understandable. Anyway, so that's there. Uh, And if you guys are already patrons, I recommend listening to that one. Uh, Really cool conversation. Uh, So what patrons get is two, at least two of those every month, these exclusive episodes. Also membership in the patron only Facebook group, which, uh, as I say over and over again, has become such an awesome community and it really has just recently I ran a survey and got over 200 responses from the survey to get information about this group of people episode ideas things that have been roadblocks to faith um, and I'm just learning a lot I'm learning a lot about you guys and it's great it's like a it's like a partnership of hundreds of people on the other side um, so that's five bucks a month patreon.com slash dan coke or you have permission click become a patron but if finances are really tough for you right now because of coronavirus or something else there is a sliding scale and if that's the case please email me you have permission podcast at gmail.com and we will work it out okay back to my conversation All right, let's talk about this scale you guys developed. You got a research program going and you developed the Hell Anxiety Scale. What is it?
2: Yeah, the Hell Anxiety Scale is a way to measure a psychological construct. So when, when psychologists talk about measuring things, and that's part of the scientific process, we unfortunately can't just cut people's brains open and pull out the whatever thing we're interested in and weigh it on a scale. We have to actually, you know, get at it in some way. So we use... Questions, which we call indicators, that are supposed to add up to some kind of measure of uh, whatever construct we're talking about. And so, not only had not a lot of research been done on this, but we thought that if we were going to correlate beliefs in hell with other sociological and psychological concepts, that we should that it would be much more meaningful to do so if we had a uh, an empirically validated measurement, like a scale. So we did what we were supposed to do. When you make a scale, we formulated a bunch of questions and then gave them to different groups and boiled down the factors that we thought uh, were most important based on statistical analysis. And we arrived at what was it six or seven items that captured the essential nature of that.
0: Well, so we're not going to get into like the nitty gritty because this isn't like a scholarly papers podcast. But ba- so suffice to say, you, you figured out the salient questions, and mm-hmm. then you, you grade it numerically. Is that is that fair to say?
2: Yeah, that's right. People respond on a Likert scale one to five, and then you add them all together. And the larger your number is, the more your belief in, or the more your anxiety about hell would indicate.
0: Okay. So we're, we're talking about, we're quantifying to some degree uh, with some level of accuracy, people's anxiety about hell. There's like early research caveats, right? Like when you're starting something and there's not a ton of work done on it and you're, you're doing good work, but it's early. How should a listener sort of modulate what they're about to hear that you found like in terms of their confidence levels and, and all that stuff
2: just that you're right that it's very early that it was not given to a representative sample in any way shape or form you would really need to validate it with a lot more numbers and then a lot more different types of people
0: yeah it'd be really interesting to compare like gen z with elders and boomers on this stuff for instance i'd like to see that but you Did get some interesting findings. And the first one, uh, you mentioned scrupulosity.
2: Yeah, religious scrupulosity is a form of obsessive-compulsive disorder that's related to or manifests with religious associations. So like with obsessive-compulsive disorder, you may believe that you need to wash your hands and you may do so behaviorally compulsively. With religious scrupulosity, you may believe that if you don't pray so often or if you don't engage in some religious ritual – in a very devoted fashion, you may be at risk of losing God's blessing or at risk of going to hell.
0: So it's performance-based and it's repetitive and it's doing it in a certain way, the same way. It's maybe the difference we might say between a Muslim who prays roughly five times a day at roughly the right times and considers that to be, you know, God understands my devotion versus a Muslim who's like, it's 12.02. I'm two minutes late. The, the rug is not uh, pointed exactly to Mecca, you know, like that kind of a thing, right? That's scrupulosity. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. And you found a high correlation. This was, I believe the highest, the strongest correlation you found was between hell anxiety and scrupulosity. So was that surprising? Did you expect to find that? And what do you think that says?
2: Honestly, that was the least surprising part of the results for me because and it was kind of con- it was kind of reassuring to know that like what we measured about how anxiety was at least showing up theoretically where we expected to see it in another place. If there is anything that makes people anxious, that sort of general anxiety or proneness to worry should be manifested in some other area. And to s- to see that it showed up in scrupulosity was sort of a confirmation that we weren't wanted- that our questions were like kind of getting at what we wanted them to get at.
0: So I've got three other correlations here, and I'd love to just chat briefly about them one at a time. So high correlation with death anxiety. What's death anxiety, and, and what does that correlation mean?
3: I mean, it is what it sounds like, right? It just makes intuitive sense, right? If you, if you are anxious about hell and you think you might go there and everything, then you're, then death is not going to be very pleasant. The, the prospect of death is, is going to weigh on you psychologically.
0: Uh, this was an interesting finding, and I think, if I recall, it, it surprised you. Religious dogmatism, which, am I right? That's the idea that, like, mm-hmm. these are the true beliefs. I am very confident that I'm right about these things. Is is that basically the – and there was no correlation between that and, and hell anxiety.
2: Yeah, and it's even – religious dogmatism even includes more, like, sort of traditional beliefs uh, about certain theological understanding so like that there is a devil per se and that just things like that so i think it would be even more likely that someone who had a high score on religious dogma would also would tend to have thoughts about hell because it's not like someone who's high on religious dogmatism is somebody who believes in some kind of you know abstract notion of universal salvation or something like that
0: steven you have anything to add
3: yeah i think i I i was a little surprised by that myself I I wonder how much of that plays into kind of what we were talking about earlier about how if you hold these beliefs, then you don't think you're going. So if religiously dogmatic people, uh, they also don't think they're going to hell. Whereas people who are less religious might in the back of their mind be thinking, well, I I should actually be doing these things. There might be some hell afterwards. Whereas if you are kind of – whereas religiously dogmatic people – maybe be getting motivated by these other things, these other facets of spirituality. But as far as the hell component, they're not actually, that's not actually in the back of their mind. I
0: I think this kind of gets to what you guys were saying about, this is probably not pathological. It's it's sort of rational, right? Like I'm thinking anecdotally about the people in my life that I think are the most certain that other people are going to hell (laughs) and how certain those people are that they're not going to hell. Right. Unless, unless they have an anxiety disorder or something like that, right? Like unless mm-hmm. there's something about their personal psychology that makes them very worried, uh, they are the most sure that they're good. You know, mm-hmm.
3: and, I mean, and, in, in a sentence, that's basically the paper. If you were to distill it into <laughs> one one sentence thesis, yes. Save so, right. hey, I mean, a lot there, of time.
2: <laughs> there might have been like a small window of time in people who have high dogmatism a small moment of time in their sort of theological evolution where they did have a lot of anxiety about hell. But the point is, is that they resolved that very quickly by, you know, grasping onto other areas of the dogmatism that would help them avoid that. And and that is, as Stephen's pointed out in the paper, a really rational response. Yeah.
0: So the third correlation is with negative religious coping. And you found a high correlation here between hell anxiety and negative religious coping. What is negative religious coping?
2: Uh, Negative religious coping is when you engage in behaviors that aren't necessarily as constructive as positive religious coping. So, for example, you would be really upset with God. You may consider not going to church as much anymore. Um, You would um, sort of question why God was abandoning you Um, instead of sort of a positive coping style would be like, you sought out um, other people's advice in a religious setting that could help make you feel better and help calm you down, or you use, use the trial to deepen your relationship with God or something like that.
3: Yeah, a lot of the negative R-Cope scale hinges on basically God imagery. So basically, do you see God as this judgmental, punishing figure, or is he you know, the kind father figure, right? So... So the negative coping scale, it kind of implies this this religious worldview of the vengeful God. If you have that kind of vengeful God idea, that's not going you know, to bode well as, as well for your mental health.
0: Yeah, that's uh, putting me in mind of an a upcoming conversation that I'm having soon with uh, a cognitive scientist of religion about the difference between, in human evolution, leadership modes. So there's kind of two broad categories There's like dominance leadership and there's prestige leadership. Mm -hmm. Dominance leadership is like, I've got the power, do what I say. Prestige is like the people who naturally become community leaders that people want to follow because they look up to them. And uh, one thing we're going to talk about is how those two ideas are modulated psychologically and how people think about God. And there's some interesting stuff about how Jesus might sort of give a prestige layer to a dominant Yahweh that kind of finds a balance. But I'm getting ahead of myself, unless you guys have something you'd like to say about that.
3: That sounds, sounds interesting. I'll yeah. listen to it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good.
0: I got two more <laughs> listeners to that episode. In the the order of my questions, I have this one, which we maybe kind of talked about, which is, you know, does hell anxiety appear to simply correlate most strongly with a person who's generally anxious or a person who's generally afraid? Or are there – did you find some little nuggets or little angles here that sort of uh, make it a bit more complicated or more interesting than that.
3: Well, that's what we found, right? Is that what? That's what was interesting was that it was not actually associated with because it's not actually associated with some of these other neuroses, right? So we thought, okay, maybe this is just a comor, this is comorbid, this happens in parallel with these other predispositions. And we found out that's actually not the case in a, in a lot of these. So it does happen with, you know, death anxiety. Some of these anxieties that are conceptually more closely related to hell anxiety. But as far as these more general neuroses, things like that, it's actually not that tightly correlated. So earlier I mentioned the possibility that there may be for some people, it's just they're just generally anxious. And this is a particular manifestation of a generalized anxiety. Um, but But in the aggregate, we didn't actually see it that much. These aren't people who are naturally super anxious to begin with. And this is just their, their manifestation, which is more evidence for the idea that this isn't a neurosis. This is a a rational outcome.
0: It's a rational outcome for people with a certain kind of disposition though. Right. So yes, not necessarily just generalized anxiety disorder, but maybe a, yeah, kind of a worry about death, a kind of like certain, certain kind of sort of personality traits we might say, but it's not, yeah, you're not crazy. You're just, you're a, you're, type of person X responding kind of naturally to the theological premises you've been given.
2: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we, we saw in scrupulosity in a very extreme sort of a sort of like outlier version that yes, people with scrupulosity are more likely to have fear of hell. But when we test that against like the big five measure of, of neuroticism, which should really tap into whether or not people are generally anxious or worried uh, as, as nature, we didn't find that association. And so, so it really does indicate that there's some kind of rational response going on here, like you said.
0: Big five is the most scientifically validated personality test available. And yeah, neuroticism. Or didn't they? isn't there a new word for that now?
2: It's emotional stability sometimes. Emotional
0: stability, yeah. That's one of the five uh, things. Openness to experience, et cetera, are the other ones. Yeah. So uh, just a couple things that I think are worth chatting briefly about that jumped out to me. I'm just going to quote from the paper here. So the first one is the percentage of people worldwide who respondents think will go to hell so what percentage of people they think will go to hell has no correlation with whether they think they personally will go to hell so <laughs> it's actually it's a little different than what i said so i was saying the people well i was saying the people who were sure that other people were going to hell were very sure that they weren't going to hell that's mm-hmm. actually not a quantitative thing they don't i don't know how many people they think are going to hell. Although. My impression from those people is they think a lot of people are going to hell. Um, but that's – I haven't validated that or anything. So this is saying you might think it's 85 percent of all people or 99 percent or only 1 percent and that has no correlation with whether you're going to hell. That's I thought that was interesting.
3: I did too. I was uh, – this is, this is a great thing about doing a subject that there's been no research on is you get to kind of just – abductively think about what the interesting questions are and you get to throw it in there, right? You don't have to have recourse to the prior literature or couch everything in these other terms. So like, this is an interesting, yeah, this is a naturally interesting idea. You know, these people who think that a lot of people are going to be burning in hell for all eternity, what do they think about their own chances, you know?
2: Yeah, it's... It's It really reminds me of work I used to do on the false consensus effect, where you're more likely to believe that a greater percentage of people share the same belief that you do if you have a certain belief. But it doesn't seem like that's necessarily what's happening here. It just seems like people are looking around saying, yeah, a lot of people are going to hell, but I'm glad I'm not, which makes me feel like it's some kind of virtue signaling thing, perhaps. I'm not going to hell. And that makes me really, really special because a lot of other people are. Mm.
0: Yeah, it's it, I mean, I just think of basic like in group, out group, us, them type of thinking. Common enemy brings people together, you know, where it might not matter how many people are going to hell. But the fact that some people are going and not us is a sort of a social bonding, a group bonding type of a thing. No doubt. Yeah,
2: it's a very like, need to belong part of the uh, Psychology, religion, for sure.
0: Okay, also this, quote, believing that hell is eternal or believing in an Augustinian physical torture hell does not appear to be related to whether people feel anxiety about hell. Now, this is interesting because you're you're finding that it's basically a fairly rational response to concepts about hell. But if that's true, then wouldn't you expect the people who think it's going to be quite torturous and sort of moment to moment physical experience that those people would be the most anxious about it. That would be the rational response.
3: Right. I mean, this is the bounded rationality component, right? right. This is the cognitive dissonance part of it. The meat of it, right? Is that, that if you if you have this very physi- unpleasant version of hell, then, then you don't have anxiety because you're not going there, right? And I mean, we can raise a bigger question about well, should that cause you to have anxiety that other people are are going there and, and going to be you know burning in, in pitch for, for all eternity? Okay. But yeah, so I think that that's one of the points. There's a lot of these data points that we uncover in this article that all say cognitive dissonance and, and, and yeah. people try to reduce that. And I think that's another uh, point of evidence for that.
0: Okay, this one is interesting. Those who have less belief in free will and who think they have a higher chance of going to hell. So these are people who are like, People don't have much free will and I'm probably going. This is a small proportion of the sample uh, are particularly vulnerable. Now, I think that makes sense, right? Like what's interesting to me is not that itself. Like, of course, if you don't think there's a lot of free will and you think you're going, you're kind of screwed. That
1: mm-hmm. makes sense.
0: What I'm interested in is sort of like what are the theological consequences or how does somebody get to be in that place? I'm thinking of maybe a sort of strong Calvinism yeah. Uh, you know, more deterministic kinds of theology. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts are about people who fit that category.
3: So I got the idea for that question from interviews that I conducted. I put this in the paper. We conducted interviews with, with some former members of a, of a kind of a fundamentalist Calvinist group right. based on our conversations. I knew that th- these people all have how anxiety. This is clearly an issue they all struggle with. And so I, I, I kind of, they let me pick their brain for a while about that. And that that's something that, that I think got brought up in those discussions was if, well, was the free will issue, right? So, so, which, like you said, yeah, it does it does combine
2: with sort of this, uh, with Calvinism. It's free will is like a mediator, right? Like, if you have, if you believe in free will, then you can, like, change your theological approach or your behavioral approach so that you can avoid hell. But if you don't have that free will belief, then you're stuck, right? And then there's nothing you can do. So you're going to be anxious, I guess.
0: So, like the <laughs> like, the worst possible scenario to be in is to... Be like a really big sam harris fan and really buy into his belief that there is no free will but then to also find calvin really convincing and then to not notions yeah and obviously and then to not find evidence that you're elect you're just screwed if that's you okay uh last one last uh, bit from the paper and then we'll talk about further research this in turn raises larger theoretical empirical and social questions about the nature of a common, often socially legitimated belief for which a severe disruptive fear may be a rational response. I mean, this is, this is fascinating, right? So if it's true that anxiety about hell is a rational response, bounded rational, you know, uh, within sort of our cognitive biases, but rational nonetheless, what, what does that say? Like, uh, theologically, do we think that people ought to have that fear Do we think that that's what God wants given what we think about God or social questions? Like, is it good for people? I don't know. Just I'm, I'm curious what you guys think some of those questions are.
3: So I put that part in as a, it it raises larger questions. I think I I was thinking more psychologically in terms of, you know, how, how do we conceptualize it's like, it's like the depression when your life really stinks idea, right? Like, like how, how, how do we deal with this? How do mental health professionals deal with somebody who's struggling with this kind of a thing? Is it crossing boundaries for a mental health professional to try to, you know, generally that's that's very taboo as, as a mental health professional is to try to talk somebody into changing a theo- theological belief. Um, yep. I'm learning that right now. Yeah. yeah, so so yeah, it does raise all those sorts of questions. I guess I wasn't really thinking theologically. Again, theologically, as a Latter-day Saint at, a, at Baylor, I was very sensitive to having this paper be seen as some kind of a – uh, hit on on you know yeah. her, religious competitors or something like that. So yeah. that, that that definitely was not my intention.
2: Yeah, we didn't. We were. I don't know if we were trying to answer any or or even provoke any philosophical or theological uh, responses other than just to say, you know, people have a limited amount of ability to process the sort of infinite uh, kinds of carrot and stick responses. Like like he, the idea of hell is so overwhelming that I don't think that we psychologically deal with it in the way that we would expect if we were being perfectly rational, which is what you guys were talking about. I think with bounded rationality, but another question is, I think if you're trying to motivate people or encourage people in a certain religious lifestyle or a certain religious form of behavior, you know, what kinds of things are healthy for people to engage in? What kinds of things make people more likely to go to church often? What kinds of things make people more likely to pray or engage in certain religious observations that you want them to? And, I, I don't know if the fear part of it is all that important, as is the processing of the theological um, ideas behind hell, if that makes any sense.
0: Yeah. I mean, look, you guys are being appropriately circumspect as scholars, <laughs> you know, sticking to your own expertise. But I kind of think Fuck that I have some really interesting questions I'd like to throw out into the world. I mean, here's one. Uh, one of the reasons that people will argue for hell—so this comes out, you know, Rob Bell and Richard Rohr and now David Bentley Hart, right? There's universalism, you know, has been a big sort of topic, especially in the evangelical and post-evangelical world. And that leads people to write books, you know, Francis Chan and John Piper. They all they all sort of get around and they, they have to sort of motivate why they still have hell as part of their theology, And I think one of the stronger arguments, frankly, from the hell motivators is that it motivates people to, in in some way, it motivates people to follow God's ways, that maybe it is just psychologically necessary to have some sort of threat of punishment in order to get people not just to behave based on some arbitrary authority, but even to behave the way they want to behave. Perhaps if I really want to live a Christian life, I need some threat of punishment Just psychologically, I need that for my own sake so that I will live that way. If that's true, which it might be true, I think that's really interesting. uh, That's a really interesting question. Maybe something from your paper is that there's a point at which more detail, more pain, more suffering, more torture. uh, There's a a steep drop off in sort of like ethical motivation. Um, And Mm -hmm. this is what you were talking about as well, Stephen, with being LDS and not having that harsh view, but still having, you, you have religious guilt, your friends have religious guilt, you know, there's plenty of guilt, plenty of motivation going around without that. I wonder if, if you could show that that might be a pretty compelling counter argument, not, not a complete disagreement, but a modulation of that, well, we better keep this Augustinian notion of hell, of eternal torment, because that's really going to motivate people. Well, maybe all you need is something like God will punish evil, including our own. Okay, well, not forever, indefinitely, such that God's a moral monster. And that also has the benefit of like, victims, right? There will be some kind of justice. People will pay, you know what I mean? Like, that's, that's the first thing that comes to mind. That's really interesting. And I think your paper speaks to that somewhat.
3: Well, and I think that's, that's the opposite side of the coin, right? The issue that some people have with universal salvation is this is me totally stepping outside of my, my academic space here. But if we, if we flip that over, then that also has issues. And so I think, yeah, I think most people have this sense like, okay, well, there has to be something for like truly evil people. Um, and most, and a lot of religious traditions do have that. Latter-day Saint tradition has that with, with Catholics, you have purgatory. So a lot of that has, has started to kind of get, uh, percolate into these different theologies. But the issue I think for a lot of people, and again, this is outside my, my boundaries here is for religions that are more Bible centric, how do you take the different disparate statements from the Bible about hell and then combine them together in such a way that it is palatable for, for kind of modern sensibilities in that sense, you know, cause yeah, I do think if people were to just create hell, from scratch, of most Christians today would have something like that. Like, okay, well, it's a temporary state, so kind of like today's justice system. You know, hopefully, people can reform, or maybe it's a C.S. Lewis kind of sense of hell, where it's yeah. all a bunch of people. The great yes. divorce. The great divorce. Yes, yeah, the great divorce, right? Where it's basically just a bunch of miserable people who hate other people, and they all go <laughs> exile themselves. You know, that's another kind of concept of hell. So, yeah, so it's, it's how do you, how do you square all that with with biblical statements, things like that.
2: Yeah, I think a neat thing for me to reflect on with the paper was that we're not rationally absorbing this message of eternal, painful hell in the way that we we thought we would. It, so it seems like it's enough of an idea just to present people with the fact that there's going to be some bad thing in the early development of their sort of Christian worldview. So they incorporate that, but then I don't think people pay attention to hell as much the more they grow in their, in their Christian faith, or at least they don't pay attention so much to the sort of eternally bad negative motivator. Because if they were, they would be out there, you know, doing all these things that we don't see them doing. And the fact that like what you mentioned before, Dan, about um, monks and religious exemplars, people who aren't motivated by hell, but are motivated by very different things, I think leads me to to the same conclusion there, that it's not, it, it, that's not the ultimate sort of motivator that that we would think that it would be.
0: Something I skipped over earlier that we could actually talk about here for a second, when I think people do start thinking about the specifics of hell is not when they're thinking about it for themselves, because as we've been talking about, people don't think they're going to hell. It's when they start thinking about it for other people. So Mm -hmm. if you're a Jehovah's Witness and you ask about your grandpa who you loved, who wasn't, they're like, he's burning in hell forever. You're like, that seems bad. That is now counterintuitive. So if you're right – Joseph, if you're right that we have – most people would sort of cobble together an intuitive sense of there's punishment. It's not everlasting. But then you start saying, well, what about my friend who's a Buddhist that goes to high school with me and his family is from India? And they go, well, yeah, his they're all going to hell. And then, well, what's hell like? Well, it's eternal conscious torment. (laughs) Really? Just for being born in India? Like, you know what I mean? Like, I think that's – and that is, I think, the connection maybe we have here – to that long-term cost of people leaving the church. And I mean, Stephen, you're, uh, your question is still really interesting of like, well, why don't they just go to more liberal churches? And that's, and that's a good question. But I think it comes later. And you guys actually talk about this in the paper that there's a real difference between the worry that I might go to hell and then the question of like loved ones and whether they might be in hell. So I'm wondering if you guys have anything to say just about that difference.
3: Well, Christian Smith, the sociologist uh, we talked about earlier, he... He actually – he wrote an excellent book called The, or the Religious Lives of American Teenagers. This is where he coined he
0: therapeutic de- deistic – Moral deism.
3: Yeah. Therapeutic, therapeutic moral deism. Moralist,
0: moralistic deism. Yeah, right.
3: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so That's he, what the
0: young people actually believe, not Christianity.
3: Yes, basically, uh, and he talks about this a little bit. He, he calls it like the Aunt Betty effect or something like that. Because uh, he he talked to these a lot of these teenagers, and he talked to a lot more teenagers than we did. A lot more, a lot more people than we did. And he he talked about hell and some of that. And he talks about that in that book where a lot of people, and this surprised me during my interviews too. A lot of a lot of young people actually do have a very traditional version of hell, right? But then you bring up sweet Aunt Betty who for whatever reason decided not to get baptized or whatever, but she's just like this Mahatma Gandhi person and everybody carves out an exception, no matter right. how dogmatic for sweet aunt Betty. And so I think that's part of that cognitive dissonance thing that we were talking about. It's like, it's when you actually put a name to a face you say, okay, yes. is he going to have a blowtorch on, you know, his face for all eternity? It's like, okay, well no, cause I see him. Right? My wife
0: and I were hanging out with an older, like a quite old uh, Greek Orthodox woman. And she was throwing her like, we're the true church thing at us. And it was a nice conversation, but I was like, yeah, I just can't, I can't really believe that mother Teresa got it so wrong. And she's like, Oh, she's one of us, you know, like, okay. (laughs) Okay. I mean, Uh, then who else is, you know, like just, just drop the
2: exclusivist claim, you know? Mm. Yeah. uh, uh, Steven, I think definitely weigh in on this, but don't Mormons have a really unique like way of solving this, this issue. like, you can just uh, baptize people that are dead and like automatically promote them, which is just, I mean, like, I don't know why Christians haven't figured that out. That sounds awesome.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's gotten us into a lot of trouble (laughs) because when you, when you, there were some people who started baptizing um, Holocaust victims and, and Frank and (laughs) so, so it's definitely (laughs) caused a lot of optics problems for us, but yeah, no, that is a theological way to square that circle uh, is, is, is kind of the afterlife and there are other religious traditions that have a version of this too, kind of, kind of afterlife. Okay. Once you get to the other side and you find out that the real God really, is, you know, that shinto really is the one true and only religion. Like, you know, then you're kind of given an opportunity to be like, okay, so do you accept the, the, these things? Um, yeah. That's the, yeah.
0: The postmortem opportunity is, yeah. I mean, I think that uh, basically I, I'm actually quite amenable to those kind of solutions. I mean, we're, we're getting a little off here. I won't spend a lot of time on this, but my experience of the world is that it is essentially unfair, uh, like at its very core through and through. And so if God I- exists and is going to deal with that, then something after this experience will in some way modulate what happened here. Like, otherwise God's not just because this world's right. not just. So It's got to be something like that, if anything at all. And, of course, it's also possible that we're all wrong and that it's just unjust and then we'll cease to exist. But uh, if God is real, then it's certainly not now that the justice is happening. Uh, Right. Well, you know what I mean?
3: Yeah. My sociology education really helped me with that to see there are just so many factors influencing how you turn out. That presumably right. any postmortem judgment will sort of control for all of that, <laughs> you know, so exactly. controlling yeah. for your parents upbringing and everything like that. Yeah. Where do you fit on the scale versus the serial killer who was raised with an abusive family? You know, maybe you would have killed more people. Yeah. It's so, right? so, the psychopath
0: whose these parts of their brain don't work. So they don't feel any empathy like that's right, not really right. on them. You know what I mean?
3: Right. Yeah. Um, So yeah, how how does God work with with psychopaths? Uh, Yeah, It's very, very complicated. But yes, a a good sociological education, I think, uh, makes most people kind of realize that there are just so many factors. And and I think free will is a part of that. But it's so moderated by everything else that goes on. So that's, that's where the whole don't judge things comes from is because only God can control for all the, you know, millions of variables going into that.
0: That's I as I study. So I'm I'm getting my doctorate in psychology right now, and as I study, the more I learn psychologically, the more drawn I am to judge not lest you be judged. I mean, I just think that that Jesus is tapping into something just so foundational to the context and the variety of human experience and brains and genetics and you know, you know family of origin and all that stuff. My last question for you guys is just where would you like to see the research go? What are some uh, What are some ideas? for further research or just things for people to be kind of percolating on and and thinking, letting percolate in their brain.
2: I'd love to see some developmental approaches um, to people's sort of like narrative course of like, you know, when they first started developing their belief in God um, and then, you know, to several years later and how their views of hell change, because I mean, I'm pretty convinced that uh, people move quickly beyond this, you know, Augustinian burning hell to some kind of, I mean, maybe I'm just projecting myself here, but to the sort of C.S. Lewis grade divorce type of situation. Yeah. So yeah, like that's to...
0: interesting. So validate if that's like basically years from conversion, right? And then plot it, plot it out. How those changes, you know, come up with some some trend lines. That'd be really interesting.
3: Yeah, oh. uh, Yeah. I didn't think about that. that, that would
2: be I want to do that one. <laughs> do it, do it. Do it. <laughs> to do it well, though, it, you need to do years. it
0: longitudinally, right? You, you need to actually do it over 20 years to get it, right cuz people will not right. necessarily remember what they they're not willn't necessarily accurately plot when they change their belief on things although maybe you could you, weed out you people try to
2: do a retrospective one i suppose yeah you
0: could do that it wouldn't be quite as accurate as if you just did it right. in real time but right. that is interesting yeah
3: again maybe it's just just based on what i brought to the study because we did all this based on you know a bunch of you know, largely Protestant students at Baylor and uh, a mechanical Turk sample. Um, I would like to see something like this done in more of an intercultural, inter-cultural interreligious context. So I have zero idea. I mean, I, I my my comparative religious knowledge of, for example, you know, Buddhism or Hinduism, I think is probably higher than average. But but you ask me how does hell. Play into all of this how, how, right. how does hell interact with kind of a cyclical nature with reincarnation? you know like how how, how do yeah. post, post-life punishment how does it interact with all the, this this kind of rich theological diversity that we have my hypothesis
0: um, is that it would be the same is that karmic justice and like getting demoted at rebirth is just as psychologically motivating as hell that would be one hypothesis it kind of what Joseph saying of like, there's a limit to what we can actually think would happen to us about hell, and so perhaps right. both of those hit that same limit, and they are essentially equally effective. That'd be really interesting, to right?
3: Make. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I could, I could definitely see that being an outcome of that study. You know, well, so what
2: would the free yeah. will component be then? I mean, because that's that's an interesting moderator for the Christian deal. I mean, is there a uh, would there yeah. be a, there be an associative free will version? Like, can you can you control your your reincarnation? I guess.
0: Yeah, I mean you Well you can't through good works, right? Yeah, it's based on your good works, right? So you're you're kind of building up merit. Okay. Yeah. And so once you get to be a human, this is the only chance you've got at real enlightenment. So you have to kind of work your way to but then you can be a human poorly and go back down, or you can, you know, become See, I
3: mean that's the thing though, there are all these really fascinating kind of theological angles. So for example, I don't even know like are there religions that have uh, this issue with free will, like we see in some brands of Christianity, in a non-Christian context? I I don't know that. Um, yeah. But the difficult thing, of course, is measuring, and we talk about this in the papers, is measuring these theological distinctions. You know, it, like I said, it, it's trying to cram so much theological nuance into a survey item, and we we kind of we, we try to do that here. We tried to make it a robust scale, but it, it is it is hard to do cross culturally. So so I would love. I don't have any illusions. This isn't a you know, psychology has different fads, and this is definitely not one of them. Um, so, I, I don't have a lot of optimism that people are going to do this cross culturally. But if I was, you know, Lord Dictator over the APA, this is, that's definitely a direction I'd go.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, probably not. Although, maybe in my own dissertation, I will use your guys' Hell Anxiety Scale as one of my measures. Anyway, yeah. thank you guys so much uh, for joining me today. Am I allowed thank to you. post the PDF of this paper or is that illegal?
2: Oh boy, I don't know how copyright works. Listen, so I I'm, just go.
0: gonna, I'm just gonna do it. I mean, please, no one's gonna. Please do. Please I'm do. I'm just yeah, gonna idea. do it.
2: We give you permission. All
0: right, I'm gonna put it <laughs> so the actual paper will be in the show notes. I'll also put a link to your guys's faculty profile in case people just wanna see what else you've worked on. I think that's it. Thank you guys okay. so much for your time.
3: All right, thank you. Later.
0: Thanks to Josh Gilbert for editing this conversation. He's available for other podcast editing work. His email is in the show notes. Uh, thank you, of course, to my guests. Check out that paper if you're interested. It's an easy to read one. Some academic research papers are full of jargon. You don't I mean you can skip past the like actual statistical numbers, but even just reading their method and their results and conclusion and especially their kind of intro I, I found really helpful. And I think you'd enjoy it if you thought this was an interesting conversation. Uh, you can join the Patreon. It's five bucks a month. It supports this show financially. You get at least two exclusive episodes per month, and you have access to the Facebook group, which is for patrons only. That's patreon.com slash dancoke, or permissionpod.com. Click become a patron, and there is a sliding scale. If finances are tight for you in this season of life, uh, that, whether that's because of the pandemic or not, email me, youhavepermissionpodcast at gmail.com, and we will figure it out. I will see you guys next week. I believe next week will be uh, the big follow-up episode to the End Times Anxiety series where I interview a bunch of baby boomers about why they believed this stuff, uh, why it was so popular in that generation, uh, and it got some fantastic stuff from them. Um, So if you liked those episodes, you'll really like this, and I'm looking forward to sharing it with you guys. Okay, see you next week.
1: If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how.